In the 80s and the 90s, we learned a new word for naughty children. Uh, and the word was strong-willed. We no longer called our children naughty. We called them strong-willed. Do you remember that? Strong-willed children. Uh, strong-willed children. I had a strong-willed child. I also had a strong-willed dog. Uh, terriers are strong-willed dogs. I don't know if you know that. It's not, you may be wondering, do I have a strong-willed dog? Do I have a strong-willed child? I'll give you some symptoms. Uh, strong-willed dogs. Strong-willed dogs wait for you to turn your back, and they climb up on your kitchen table, and they poop to show dominance. I had a strong-willed dog. Strong-willed dogs, though they are very, very housebroken, uh, when you are out of the house and they want you to be in the house, they will find their way back into your closet and leave you gifts. Strong-willed dogs, strong-willed dogs like Gladys, uh, when they see that you're leaving, uh, when you want them to go outside, you go uh, to the door and you open the door, and they get to the doorway half in, half out, and look at you to say, are you coming? Because I'm not going without you. And they wait until you're out in the cold before they'll go out in the cold. Strong-willed dogs, when they see that you're leaving, rush to the front door before you can get there and will wrap their legs around your leg because they want to go with you so that you're kind of left doing this. Strong-willed dog. I have a strong-willed dog. She lives in Florida now. I gave her away to someone who kept her for three weeks before giving her away. she That's what we do with strong-willed dogs. We, we don't get rid of them. We rehome them. And she's been rehomed. I also had strong-willed children, strong-willed child who, uh, you know, takes to see Peter Pan, and it was time to clap for Tinkerbell, and he looks at me and goes, I ain't clapping. Strong-willed children, strong-willed children, I want to be in pictures so bad that they jump up and they knock the camera out of your hand when you're not taking a picture of them. Strong-willed children. Strong-willed teenagers. They, um, they refuse to do busy work, even though they know their grade depends upon it. They refuse to do it. And so they take classes like AP Physics and make a very, very low F in the class, but then take the AP exam and make a five out of five. So they end up getting college credit for a class they did not get high school credit for. Strong-willed children don't like to lose. Strong-willed children watch the Super Bowl and watch their favorite team in the Super Bowl go out to a 28-3 to lead and get excited and then slowly watch that lead get dug into in the second half until the other team comes back and ties them. And they take that iPhone that you bought for them and they slam it. Strong-willed children, you text them and you say, hey, why are you not responding to my text? And they say, because my phone's broken. And you say, okay, well, let's go get you another one. And they say, I'm just sorry that you have to keep paying for these. And you say, son, everything that I have is yours. I just want you to get some of it while I'm still alive so I can see you enjoy it. You send strong-willed dogs to Florida. You give everything you have to strong-willed children. 
because they're your children. They're your sons. You love them. Everything you have is theirs. You almost like it when they break something so that you can show them how much you love them. Trust me, parents, if your children aren't old enough for that yet, it's coming. And the question for you is, do you think you're God's pet or his child? Now, the answer is you're God's child. That's an objective fact. If you're in Christ, you are a son or daughter of God. That's just an objective fact. But how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as running thin on his patience? Do you see yourself as being in danger of being sent and rehomed to Florida? Do you understand that that all of the obligations of righteousness, all of the law has been fulfilled by Jesus on your behalf? Or do you still think you have to fulfill rules, keep rules and fulfill laws to get close to Jesus? Uh, We're we're going back into the book of Galatians for uh, the spring up until Easter, this winter up until Easter. And, and I want you to remember, the book of Galatians is not an evangelistic book. It's not written for unbelievers. It's not to tell unbelievers, you're not in Christ, but you want to come into Christ. The book of Galatians is written to a church, a church filled with people who, even though they were in Christ, insisted on seeing themselves as God's pets, insisted on relating to God through his rules and his laws. And Paul tells them, if you're living by the law, you're no better than the unbelievers. If you're working, if you're living and viewing yourself as a slave, my work is in vain. And and I, I, I want to really labor this because I know you. And so many of you have this picture in your mind of what you ought to look like when you ought to get out of bed, how much Bible reading you ought to be doing, how you ought to be relating to your co-workers, how you ought to be relating to your family, how you ought, how you ought, how you ought. And you feel the constant disappointment of God when you're not what you believe you ought to be. And I want you to know that is the, that's just not true. That is you insisting on seeing yourself as God's pet. And you're his child. He's not put off by your illness. He's not put off by your weakness. It draws him out. He wants you to enjoy him. He wants you to enjoy his grace. He wants you to enjoy his love. He wants you to enjoy his mercy. As long as you insist on relating to God through his rule-keeping, through this standard, you never get to enjoy him as your father. That's the message of of, uh, Galatians 3 and 4 that we're going to read today. Please stand as we see. The choice really is up to you. Will you relate to the Lord through faith or through the law? Will you enjoy his fatherhood or will you be his slave? Hear the word of the Lord. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heir according to promise. Now, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Thus far, the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all of our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. God's word stands forever. You may be seated. Do you see yourself as God's slave or as God's son? Are you God's pet or are you God's child? It's... in an experiential level, it is the most important question you can be asked. And, and the first thing I want you to see is that, that the law has a purpose. The law was a guardian. And you need to understand the law's purpose so you don't continue to slave under it. The law has a purpose. What is it? It says it here in the text. It imprisoned us. The law imprisons us. It, it convicts us. The law tells us what we ought to do and what we ought not to do, right? And guess what? You want to do what you ought not to do. From, the, from childhood, no one had to teach you to lie. If when you were over at your cousin's house and he had toys that you didn't, no one had to teach you to covet. No one had to teach you to sneak that Barbie doll into your pocket. No one had to teach you to do any of those things. You came into the world knowing how to sin, and you had to be taught differently. That's what we do with children. We teach them the law because their hearts have not been regenerated again. That's what's going on with your children right now, right? They are in Sunday school. They're being taught the law. Do this. Don't do that. The law imprisons us under guilt because we do wrong things. The law then shows us the, the sinfulness of our sin. If you look through the Old Testament, some of you are reading through the Old Testament now, and you're, uh, you're doing it chronologically, so you're in Job which is also hard. Boy, the Bible starts out tough. I just want you to know it gets better. Hang in there, right? If you read through the Bible as it's written, you'd be like in Leviticus by now going, ugh, that's tough too, right? And it's all about being dirty. 
The law imprisons us under guilt. The law imprisons us under, under dirt, under shame. It makes us to feel the, the, the dirtiness of sin, as Paul says in Romans 7, the sinfulness of sin. It makes us feel our need to be cleansed. We can't come to God as we are. We're, we're ostracized. We're thrown out from the temple because of our sin and our, our filth, our uncleanness. The law points us to, uh, well, it, it imprisons us, right? It imprisons us under our inability. The law shows us this is what you ought to do. This is who you ought to be. This is who you are. And you say, okay, I will be that person. And you can't. The things you want to do, you don't do. The things you don't want to do, you end up doing. You're imprisoned under this. You find it to be a a law that whenever you seek to do good, evil is right there with you because it's in your own heart. The law imprisons us. The law is is a guardian that's meant to bring us to Jesus. It's a, the, the phrase for guardian, it's not, we don't have really a good word for it. Some of the older, if you have you know, a King James or a, a, even an NIV, it probably has the word tutor in it. And tutor's not a very good word either because in our, you know, in our world, if you're having trouble with calculus, you go hire a tutor for an hour a week and get her to take your test for you. Um, but, in, you know, in that day, basically parents... Wealthy parents, landowning parents, would hire a slave, or not hire a slave. The word slavery is also problematic because, as it was practiced in America, has nothing to do with how it was practiced in Rome. Um, In America, it was abusive and violent and based on kidnapping, and and it's really harmful to even in any way equate our relationship with God to that. It wasn't like that in Rome where basically everybody who was in debt was a slave. It was like an indentured servant. And you would hire an indentured servant and the way they would they would work off their debt to you would be to train your child for you. And it, it was you were the whole school. You were you were K through sixteen. You were everything and you kind of you would you teach the child how to do everything that he needed to know to be an adult in, in the Roman world and to be a landowner and be a responsible adult, and you would bring them back to the parent as as a, an adult. You're kind of like Merlin does with uh, King Arthur in The Once and Future King, if you've read that. And, and that's what the law does. He, he, he works on us. He shows us our sin. He shows us how we are to live, and he brings us to Christ. He brings us to Christ and shows us that Christ is the one who was sacrificed for us to pay the guilt for our sin. Christ is the one who is shamed for us so that we can be cleansed from our sin. Christ is the one who presents us to God so that we can go boldly before the throne of grace without shame, without guilt, without fear, so that we can be His children and we can call Him Abba, Father, without fear and without shame. And I want you to understand that. This is a little bit of a teachy thing, but you need to understand the law hasn't been abolished The law has been fulfilled. All of its purposes were fulfilled in Jesus. And so now we live as adults. We're not children anymore. The heir is no different from a slave as long as he's a child, but we're not children anymore. Does that mean we don't need the law? Basically. 
I mean, honestly, like if you're at, you know, CVS this afternoon and you see a younger, thinner, more attractive version of your spouse and you are tempted to commit adultery, then it would be wise for you to pull the law out and go, hey, don't do that, right? Like if you're, if the offering plate comes in front of you this morning and you're tempted to take money out of it, yes, you need the law. Don't do that. I don't think that's a temptation for a lot of you. You've, you've probably by now so got the law into your heart that you don't even think about it, like it's not even really a temptation to steal or to kill, I hope. But if that's, you know, it's still there, sure. But, but you're an adult. You're an adult. You're, you're meant to have adult questions, issues with the law. How do adults deal with the law? We're trying to find good ways to apply it, right? We, we look at people and we say, well, how do I love this person? What does love look like? Now, that's a good question. But that's a question for free people. The law has been fulfilled. We don't deal with God through law anymore. That's not the way we deal with him. We deal with him as father. He's right here with us. That's the purpose of the law. That's, it, it was fulfilled. But the son who doesn't live as an adult, the son who insists on living and dealing with God as a child, continues to be childish is no better off. The son is basically a slave. Many of us choose to be slaves. We choose to view ourselves that way. What do I mean? Um, Okay, so if you go back to your history, then you know that uh, after the Civil War, all the slaves in the country were emancipated, right? But they were not given full and free rights like, like white Americans. The, 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 every state began to develop the, these codes, like they were called Jim Crow laws, and they were designed to keep former slaves pushed down and, and to keep them under rules and to keep them afraid and keep them uh, in, in place in, in, different, in particular areas of town to keep them from, from being equals, to keep them from being truly free. And a lot of us essentially Im- apply our own Jim Crow laws to ourselves. We still deal with God in a relationship of fear. We still deal with God in this relationship of, of I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint Him. And we, we, we're not full free, joyful, adult children of God. Instead, we are afraid, scared, um, exhausted, basically still slaves of God. What, what do I mean? Well, we, we live under shame. We still don't really think that we're good enough for him. We, we still don't really think that, that he's forgiven us. We, we live under this, labor under this guilt of not believing that he's forgiven us or thinking that even though he has forgiven us, he's still really disappointed with us and he might 
send us off to Florida at any moment. We, we labor under this belief that he's just disappointed with us. Is that, and, and I want you to ask, is that you? Do you live in a constant fear of disappointing God? of being a disappointment to him? Do you think that you're some kind of train wreck that has fallen far, far short of what God wants for you? And do you beat yourself up for that? Or think, I mean, even, I mean, just really practically, like today, when you come to church and, you, and you, <clears throat> you're, you're kind of hunkering your shoulders and you're praying with this idea that maybe if I confess my sins hard enough, what would that even mean? I, I don't know. If I confess my sins hard enough, then I'll, I'll know the joy of the Lord. I, uh, well, this is no secret. I turned 50 <clears throat> X number of years ago. And uh, I went to one of my, my spiritual mentors, and uh, I was really, I'd been preaching that summer through Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes, it says, uh, actually, it says this in First uh, Kings, it says, in his older age, Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord. And that text really scared me. And I, I, mean, I carried it with me for a long time. And I went to one of my spiritual mentors, and, and he looked at me, and he said, well, what are you afraid of? And I said, well, maybe I you know, haven't really developed my, my spirituality. And I was trying to use all these kind of long words. I, I don't think I've developed my, my spiritual you know, character enough and he's like, what would that even mean? And I said, well, I don't really think I've prayed enough. And he, he looked at me and goes, how much would be enough? You really think that God's going to let you fall away because you haven't prayed enough? How does that stand up by just, against justification by faith? Do you believe it or not? You know, are you like me, did you, who for years and years, like until this many years old, believed that the way I got God to hear my prayers was by feeling bad? You know, i got to feel bad enough to get Him to come and, and be nice to me. That's all, just, that's just slavery. And what that does is it sets us up in this relationship with our sin, that we're so afraid of sin that we... We're so afraid of failure that we kind of, we, we can't take responsibility for it. We blame it on everybody else. We set our life up so that if everybody would just do what we want them to do, then everything would be perfect and I wouldn't fail. And I would meet this, this image that I have in my mind. And so when my dog or one of my children causes me to sin, it's not my fault. It's my dog's fault, right? She was just a, if she were a spaniel instead of a terrier, everything would be fine. If my son, my children were compliant instead of strong-willed, everything would be fine. And I, I'm unable to take responsibility for my own sin, and so I'm unable to enjoy forgiveness for my own sin, and I'm unable to give that forgiveness to each other. That's what it. That's what it lives, feels like to live as, as a slave, even though you're an heir. But that's not what God's calling us to. He's calling us to live as, as his children, to live as heirs 
to, to glory. Look in verse 4 of chapter 4. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, what, what Paul's doing is really interesting. He, he's drawing this, this picture of history that also mirrors uh, the story of our life, right? So Jesus has come in history to redeem his, his children and to make them sons of God. But he also, he, he comes into our life. He dawns upon us. And at that point, we make this transition from being slaves, from being children, to being sons and living as heirs. And, and the question that this text asks for us, right, we're many, many, many years later, is not has Jesus come yet, obviously he has, but has that dawned on you yet? Has that dawned on you yet? You know what that I'm sorry, that's an old southern term. It's my mom's term. Has it, has it, have you awoken to that yet? I, uh, over Christmas we were talking about music, uh, and Bianca brought the, the band In Excess. In Excess is a classic rock band if you're younger than me, and they're a, a new wave band if you're older than me, and they're just a band if you're my age, and uh, they're a great band if you're my age. And uh, Bianca said, that was the first concert I went to see in college. And she said, that's when I realized I didn't have to ask my mom's permission to go to a concert. You know, that, you, you had that moment at some point in your life when you realized, when, you, when it dawned on you that you didn't need permission. Remember that, like whatever that first thing was? Has it dawned on you that you're an adult heir of God yet? Has that dawned on you? That he's happy with you? That he's with you? That he wants to be near you? He wants you to acknowledge his presence? That he, this is it, this is the phrase I'm meant to use. Has it dawned on you that he's on your side? He is not somebody you have to hide from. He's on your side. He wants to work. Yes, he sees all those flaws that you see. And he knows that you would like to stop hurting people. And he wants you to stop hurting people. And he wants to work with you. But he's on your side. Do you have, do you have the security and confidence to be able to cry, Abba, Father, to call him your intimate dad to, to take in that intimate language with him and know that he'll respond you have the the security and the, the confidence of a child who just walks into the kitchen knowing that you're going to get fed or you still live in fear that your every every moment of your life is dependent upon all those pennies that you've been counting and if you don't have enough pennies then you're 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 living in fear that you're not going to have enough you live in the confidence that your father is taking care of you. You have the confidence when you back out of the driveway and forget to look behind you. And you slam into your son's friend's car that shouldn't have been parked there. I mean, do you, 
immediately get angry. I mean, you get angry, of course. Nobody wants to slam into somebody else's car. But, I mean, do you go into this kind of craven fear of, oh, no? Or do you acknowledge, well, that's a, that's a funny thing for God to do with his money. That's not how I would have spent it. But we're going to be okay. Do you believe that God is on your side? Do you believe that he wants you to enjoy your inheritance now? So he can see it. Or are you still afraid he's going to send you off to Florida? Please pray with me. Father in heaven, it's hard. We've been told our whole lives we've had this... uh, these kind of Jim Crow laws enforced over us and being told what we ought to be and how we ought to look and how we ought to dress and how we ought to talk and what we ought to eat and what we ought to drink. and It's hard for us to enjoy freedom. And it's hard for us to enjoy you. And I pray... Father, that you would make us just a little bit closer. I pray for some of us that you, it would dawn on us today that we are your children. I pray, Father, that when we start to condemn ourselves because of these, these rules that did not come from you and that you never intended for us, when, when those start to condemn us, Father, I pray that you would just set off a little alarm in our minds. And remind us that we're your children, we're not your pets. And I pray that you would replace that fear, that disappointment, that fear of disapproval that we live with. I pray that you would replace that with joy and intimacy and fellowship with yourself. We pray in Jesus' name.